Today's episode is with mental health activist and author Ben West. I want to set the scene by referencing Ben's book, This Book Could Save Your Life. On average, 20 to 30% of children in each classroom in the UK suffer with a diagnosable mental health condition. Of the 540,000 referrals to CAMS in 2019 to 2020, 70% of those were not seen within three months. Now, these stats are sobering, but they don't really tell the whole story. Ben himself was thrown into the world of mental health at an early age, but he has managed to channel his experience to create a huge amount of positive change. He has started two incredibly popular government campaigns, become an influential figure in the mental health space, and he's even written a book to share his learnings. It was a real pleasure to chat with Ben, and I have a feeling that he's only just getting started. Hi Ben, welcome to the sofa. Nice to have you back for actually the second time. Yeah, I was going to say. I'm glad we finally got a chance to do it. It was a little bit of an error on my part from a technical (laughs) perspective. But welcome back to the country. You've had a nice time in Australia recently? Yeah, just got back from Australia. Went there for a month, which is so nice. I mean, I like just getting out of the country for a little bit, getting away from everything. We ended up in a camper van doing the East Coast of Australia. But yeah, come back. Jet lag was horrendous, but I'm over that now. I'm back to... Business as usual. Back to sadly. reality. Sadly, yeah. Back to the winter. Um, let's start with your book. So this book could save your life, uh, Breaking the Silence Around the Mental Health Emergency. I think it's a really nice place to start. Um, the words I sort of, that come to mind when I think of, when I read the book, are it's very raw, it's striking, yeah. uh, and it's very insightful, but it's also very funny. So you come across really well in the book. So kudos for, for writing it. I think you did a really, really good job. I wonder if you could sort of tell us a little bit about your story. Like, how have you come to write a book? Take us maybe back from the start. Yeah, okay. So um, my story starts in 2018, 2017, 2018. Back then, I was 17 years old. I had no idea what mental health was. You know, this was not something that anyone ever talked to me about ever. Mm. At school, I think it maybe, maybe once came up in an assembly, but it was never really mentioned in any sort of depth. So it was not something I was aware of. And then in September 2017, Sam, um, my younger brother at the time, who's 15 years old, was diagnosed with clinical depression. And my mum told me, much like we're doing now, sat me down, she was like, look, Ben, I need to tell you about what's happened. Sam's been diagnosed with clinical depression. And um, <laughs> I just, I remember thinking, what is that? How, how can you be diagnosed with depression? How can you be diagnosed with feeling sad? Like to me, yeah. that doesn't make sense because if I was having a bad day or feeling sad, I'd go and chuck on some, some, I don't know, some like cigar or, you know, like happy, like big tunes and get, you know, get up and get some tunes on or go out and play football or go for a run and yeah. go see friends and, you know, go to the pub or something and just, you know, go and do something that I like to do. So I couldn't understand how you could be diagnosed with depression. And then, January 2018, I was 17, Sam was 15. Um, the 21st January, uh, he took his own life at home. Um, me and my mum found him. I ended up having to do CPR um, for about 20 minutes before the ambulance arrived. And that whole, I mean, that experience in itself was absolutely horrendous like the the worst evening worst day of my entire life can't really get any worse than that right just absolutely horrendous um but i guess i went into that evening not knowing what he was dealing with not knowing what depression was never having spoken to him about his diagnosis you know it's just three months after i was told about it and never spoken to him about it and i left that evening i woke up on monday morning and i just lost my brother to depression wow and and i realized actually like that thing that I was told back in 2017 that I barely remembered at the time, barely had any significance, just killed my brother. 
and I, in the book as well, I sort of talk about it like the sort of the analysis of that mindset back then of being like, have my mum sat me down that night and said, Sam has leukemia or Sam has um, terminal brain cancer. I'd be like, oh my God, that's absolutely horrific. And in essence, she said the same thing. You know, this was an illness that killed him. But because it was depression, because I didn't understand it, I never spoke to him about it. Do you think we've changed that, like, mindset on mental health versus physical health just quickly? Oh, it's very difficult to say. I, I, the whole mental health, physical health thing annoys me slightly sometimes because I'm like, actually, there is just one thing. It's health. Yeah. Um, I, I think when it comes to mental health that we have very good awareness of what mental health is, but we have very, very poor understanding. Um, and, you know, we've done, we've come on leaps and bounds in terms of mental health awareness now, but we've come on very, very little in terms of mental health understanding. And actually, you know, it's all right to know that depression and mental health exists. But in that situation, I didn't just need to know that depression was a thing or mental health was a thing. I actually needed to understand it, to ask those questions mm. and to realise the significance. And not only realise the significance, but actually understand it enough to have that conversation with him and know how to support. Because, you know, even if I was aware of depression and mental health, we live in a world where we find difficult conversations difficult, mm. um, especially as Brits, especially as men. Like especially anything. with brothers as well, yeah, particularly. Yes. I, I can talk about that from personal yeah. experience for sure. Definitely. It, it, we find those conversations really hard. So it's, yeah, you're right. We've made a great amount of awareness in mental health and this comparison with mental health being as important as physical health. But I think the understanding behind that awareness is still what's lacking. And that's mm -hmm. obviously what I try and do my work, what I've tried to do in the book is sort of elevate that understanding to give people the tools and the confidence to be like, you know what, I don't, I'm not just aware of this stuff that's going on, actually I can understand it and I can mm -hmm. then go and go forward in my own life, look after myself, look after my friends a little bit better. Yeah, and I'd, I'd take it even further from that, the understanding it's like, actually what do you do about it? So what is yeah. the, and I think that's why I used one of the words actionable about your book. Like you give people tools to do that. It's what I try and do online as well. How do you translate once you have the awareness and the understanding, what do you then actually go and do? Uh, I think that's, I think that's one of the hardest bits. And I don't think we've quite got that. Well, we definitely, I'd say that we have not got the infrastructure yeah. in place. We've got the awareness, but the infrastructure is not in place to actually put those things into practice. Exactly. And I think that is one of the most important parts. You know, you can talk as much as you like. And then again, I'll make the comparison with cancer. So, you know, we saw huge death rates in can uh, for cancer patients a long time ago. And the reaction that we had as a, as a society was twofold. We put a huge amount of effort and time and money into prevention and prevention in terms of awareness of cancer and, you know, things that you could do for yourself in terms of checking and, and early noticing alarm, early intervention, early, yeah, and, and noticing things and then, and then having the knowledge of, okay, I've noticed this thing. This is where I go. I'm going to go and book a GP appointment. And then sort of we understand that process. And then we also put a huge amount of money into treat, uh, into treatment and, and, um, and research, right? And the treatment and research we can leave, just put to the side for a second. Let's focus on that preventative stuff. When we talk about mental health, we've done a huge amount in terms of awareness that it exists in the same way that we did a lot about awareness that cancer exists. But now we just need to take that same model and go, okay, how do you notice it in yourself? How do you notice it in others? And what exactly that word, what is actionable? What do you then do to be like, okay, this is the pathway I now take. And then obviously, you know, there's other issues to unpack in the treatment and research part of this. Mm. But absolutely, what absolutely needs to happen is that we need to give people the awareness, tick. We need to give people the understanding, the ability to notice it in themselves and others. And then we need to give them the knowledge to then be like, this is what I do now. Yeah, it's creating behavior change. 
Yeah. I've been speaking quite a lot about this recently with friends and and people I meet in the space and that requires a bit of like an understanding of like psychology like how do you actually form habits um that are healthy and break unhealthy habits and put in place so once people understand okay I feel like crap but what am I going to do about yeah. it how do you actually get that in place and I think the real win the real value with that is getting people early so 50% of all mental health mm. conditions start before the age of 14 75% before the age of 18 like yeah. we're already missing the battle if we're starting this when people are 25 mm. you're already stuck in your ways like you, we know how hard it is to start a new habit that's healthy for you when you're you know when your brain yeah. your prefrontal cortex is fully evolved yeah. and you know you're stuck in you're stuck in those patterns so what we need to do is go earlier it's got to be a school Definitely. approach it's got to be a whole school approach you have to get the other people involved so with what i'm sort of doing in the background with with my company is is we're trying to make sure we involve teachers and parents as well because you need the important people in that child's life mm. to have a big impact and play a big role with that yeah. um, and if you can do that then hopefully you can catch things early and we can change those statistics and start reducing that 50% number Definitely. and i think you know with a waiting list you've got options okay either you increase the resources or decrease demand or the third option is get people onto the waiting list earlier okay let's look at it like an airport okay you either fly more planes um or you reduce the number of passengers or you arrive to the airport earlier okay because everyone knows you arrive 2 hours you're going to get on the flight if you arrive an hour there an hour there you're not going to make your flight same sort of principle mm. right so then i find it really funny in schools Um we talk about mental health we talk about all this stuff and so many schools and so many teachers are like oh but they're not old enough to d- deal with these themes they're not old enough to be taught this um a great one is sex education okay when does sex education really start year 9 what's that 13 14 you know you talk to a lot of people in certain areas in the country you know sex is a thing in their life already by that point mm. you know but so many schools and primary schools we were like what why are we you know we don't even need to talk about this it's just we we don't want to infiltrate their mindset or whatever yeah. i'm like actually you're getting it completely wrong because you're completely misreading this population and actually introducing these themes is not necessarily are they able to take it and are they able to handle this theme it's how do we teach it in a way that is sensitive to that age and is able to to be taken on board by that age group because it's so important that mm. we get people to the airport earlier you don't want to be missing your flight <laughs> yeah, 100% and i think that sort of like mollycoddling of of young people like really needs to stop but what what i think from a mental health perspective why we probably don't do enough of it for young people why that hasn't been the case so far is because in some regards there's a lot of stigma still around mental health and when you speak to young people now Uh, what I've learned from speaking to young people and their parents is if you talk about mental health they immediately r- relate that to mental illness yeah so they think of anxiety they think of depression they think of self-harm and and all of these negative uh, associations and we need to flip it on its head whether or not it's just a clever way of changing the language so mental fitness or emotional health mm. or building resilience or whatever it is there needs to be something that we do to make that little switch and then perhaps even schools will be more inclined to do that and i think you know schools do care and school, schools are trying to do that but they're also pushed so hard from a perspective mm. of achieving let's say like quotas of you know <laughs> an x number of grades in whatever category you know a to c all yeah. that sort of stuff and so 
they're under a, a massive amount of pressure, but things massively need to change. Yeah, definitely. And I think you've touched on a really interesting point from a campaigning perspective. And obviously, this is something I do with not just with schools and, and, and governments, but, you know, companies that I work for. It's trying to identify the metric that looks sexy to them. So, you know, you can have the same ask, but you've got to find the metric that's a sexy thing for them. And with mental health at schools, particularly, you've got two is exam results and attendance. And if you can play the, the, the reason for improving mental health into those two categories, then suddenly you've got attention of execs and, and senior mm. level staff. Um, because that's really what their budget comes from is grades and attendance. And so, you know, we can prove that, you know, educating and investing in mental health support for young people improves their attendance, it improves their grades, it improves their productivity, all metrics that are sexy to leadership in schools. And it's the same with companies, you know, how do we get a, a, a completely, you know, uh, um, uh, emotionally in, unintelligent leader to understand the importance of investing in mental health in the office. It's showing them that return on investment on mental health um, provisions is up to nine to one and showing them they can, they can, you know, increase the bottom line, increase the profit by investing. And it's the same sort of thing. And I think from a campaigning angle, it's like, you're exactly right. It's, it's trying to find the metric that looks good, but also this mental illness, mental fitness thing is really interesting. Mental health, the number of people you speak to, especially in, in actual medical roles and that, that work with people in this situation, you, they'll, they'll, they won't say they've dealt with mentally ill patients or mentally ill people. It'll be, it's a, a mental health case or, you know, this person has mental health, um, which has sort of become quite colloquial in, in the, in the emergency services and in, in the NHS is like, oh, it's just, it's a person with mental health. When actually we all are, you know, everyone has <laughs> yeah. mental health, right? What that person has is a mental health condition, a mental illness. And really mental health awareness, mental health education, looking after our mental health really does two things. It prevents illness and it improves fitness. Um, and so just like taking your multivitamins in the morning, right? You're, you're trying to boost your immune system so you can get over illnesses quicker and you can avoid illnesses, but also you're doing it so you've got your vitamin D and your zinc and you're going to feel more energized. So you're going to be more productive and less likely to become mm. ill. Mental health is exactly the same thing. You invest in your mental health, you're going to become more productive and less likely to get ill. And no one has a perfect life. Everyone suffers and struggles in their life. It's not about necessarily avoiding those problems. It's about when you experience something difficult, are you in a position where you have the mental fitness and the, and the, you know, the coping mechanisms already in place to get through that challenge? Or are you going to pick up illness through those challenges? And that's really the key thing behind mental health at the moment is like, it's a positive thing, people. It's like you can yeah. invest and become more productive and everything. I just think sadly that it's gone too far in terms of like the stigma associated with that. And there just yeah. needs to be a huge <clears throat> perspective shift and a perspective shift on health. Like you said before, they are one and together. They yeah. are the same thing. So there's a new documentary, uh, Jonah Hill's done a documentary with his therapist, um, Phil Stutz. It's called Stutz, but it's, it's brilliant. Mm. So he's written a book called The Tools and he basically makes these sort of visual the therapeutic concepts so he makes these visualizations for you to use in your daily life but through one of those he's talking about and he's talking about the importance of your life force so the things that like sort of drive yeah. you and within that one of the big parts is your body you know how do you respect your body what's your relationship like with your body and i think that comes down to like your diet your sleep and your nutrition and having this understanding that what your mental health is doing 
is completely and utterly intertwined with those three things or or the the, the other physical health things. And what we need to do is educate people younger that eating is and exercising is not just for your heart or for your liver or for your muscles. Like it's for your brain. And obviously I think that's improved slightly, but I didn't know that until I was like 21, 22. And I'm hoping that young people do have a better understanding of that now, but I still think that that is lacking and we need to go earlier and do that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you can you can make it into very basic terms. You know, imagine a day that's stressful. Okay, I don't know. So my week's been pretty stressful. Okay, I've had absolutely so much work. I my car broke down. I whacked it into a massive pothole. I don't have a car, and that has been a stressful week standalone. But then you start to think, and like, if I was to have had this week, but I hadn't slept, or I'd been staying up all night, or I haven't been able to sleep, or I've been like not prioritizing my sleep then I can imagine trying to do this week again 10 times worse. Mm. Or let's say I wasn't eating or I was eating really unhealthy food and feeling guilty for the food I was eating. Suddenly, the week one is a lot more stressful. And if you start to think about like certain events happening and what would make it even worse for you, then you start to realise what those things are that play into your mental health. Everyone understands one basic um, thing that most of us go through, and that's hangovers. Okay, I think hangovers are one of the most easy things to understand how our physical health affects our mental health. If you drink loads of alcohol, which is a diet thing, the next day you're going to feel depression, you're going to feel anxious, you're going to feel all these, you know, categorized mental health problems or mental health difficulties mm. because of your, your the stuff you put in your mouth, right? And if that can happen through alcohol, then imagine what vitamins and, and eating healthy can do the other way, make you feel better and going for a walk and releasing those endorphins and those endocannabinoids and all these lovely chemicals. You know, people find it very difficult to understand the positive side, but they find it very easy to understand the negative side. Mm. If you take away all of this good stuff, then you know what that feels like. But actually, it's like, you know, whenever we get a sore throat, I always think, oh, I need to appreciate having not a sore throat more often. Okay, it's very easy to understand when you don't feel okay. Sometimes it just sort of feels like, a given that you're feeling okay. Mm. So, um, but yeah, it's it's so important that you look after your for your, phys- uh, your mental health. But you're right, it's not a mental health and physical health, it's health. Treat yourself in a healthy yeah. way and then you're going to feel the effects both ways. And starting that process just earlier, I think, yeah. is key. You know, get into those kids with their plastic yes. brains. <laughs> yeah. So we've gone on a really nice tangent there, but um, you were sort of talking about your story of losing your brother um, and... Uh, then I think it would be really useful if you sort of explain what that sort of led you to going into. You obviously got a really interesting career now um, and leading you to writing the book. And it'd be great to just hear a little bit about that next part of your story. Yeah. So, so Sam died in, in January 2018. Um, I was still at school. I was in my final year of school, of sixth form. So I had A-levels on the horizon. <laughs> um, and basically at that point, I was either grieving or doing A-level revision. And I was like, I don't want to do either of those things. <laughs> the A, the, the R words, I'm not a fan. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, you know, I, I wanted to do something. And, and I remember we had this school memorial. And up until this point, every message I was receiving was, hi Ben, really sorry to hear what's happened. If there's anything you need, let me know. Most of them went along the, those lines. Really lovely messages. Um, I stood up in front of the school and I just poured my heart out and I said everything I needed to say and I was really vulnerable. And I literally, I stood down from that podium and I went outside and that evening, every single message I was receiving completely changed from, if there's anything you need, let me know, to 
how, hey Ben, I've got this thing going on. I really need to talk to someone about it or I really need to talk to you about it or thank you so much for doing this today. I've got this going on. Um, I need someone to, to know that. And I had friends tell me they'd attempted suicide before. I had friends tell me that they'd been diagnosed with anorexia, had depression, anxiety, PTSD. And I was like, so overwhelmed. Wow. And I saw, yeah, yeah and I saw all these people struggling and a lot of them hadn't told anyone before. And I just remember thinking, and this, this, this thought process came out of a lot of, lot of different places. It came out of a place of fear of having to go through suicide again, because that was a very real risk given the, what I was seeing. Um, it came out of a, a place of, I want to give Sam what he should have had, which is the ability to feel comfortable with what he was going through. And, yeah. and, you know, I wanted to create that world where he, would have survived. And then I also just saw all these people struggling. I was like, you should just be able to talk to your friends. And so that's what really started me in the campaigning was just basically like, let's do an event. This is completely ridiculous. However, all of you have this stuff going on. No one's talking about it. And I hosted a big walk, um, called walk to talk, which is a uh, fundraising, but it was also, you know, you dressed in bright pink had this com- had a walk, had people talking on the walk, and it was uh, amazing, absolutely amazing. Um, and I guess it was there that I had conversations with teachers, my teachers, Sam teachers, and realised there was a real gap in terms of the education system in itself and what we were and weren't doing. But also, which is a, pati- a particular you know, focus for me, is actually how we prepare teachers to go into that classroom. You know, we live in a world, we just had the, the new stats for young people's mental health. Five people in every UK classroom have a diagnosable mental health condition. Mm. That's a reality. Um, and at this current moment in time, still, despite my best efforts so far, um, still there is absolutely no statutory guidance for mental health education um, for teachers during their teacher training. Um, the, I've read all the legislation. It's not fun. I wouldn't recommend it. It's not a good read. But the <laughs> mix, mix matching of, of, of different statutory requirements for different organisations, there's so many pieces of information that are missed out. There's a lot of assumed knowledge that really isn't taught anywhere. And so for me, it's like highlighting that because I don't think teachers can go into the classroom properly prepared to deal with the children in that classroom if they aren't given the knowledge and the experience in teaching to actually an, an education in mental health. Um, and so that became my next thing. And I launched a petition um, on the back of the conversations to make mental health first aid part of teacher training, mm-hmm. which went a very, very long way. <laughs> um, we got something like 312,000 signatures, end up in Downing Street and Kensington Palace, met the prime minister who were uh, said thank you very much and <laughs> and we'll see you later or or have a photo outside the door um and you know for me next year 2023 it's about reigniting that and refocusing some energy on how important it is to give our teachers that education but that's why the book so on the back of this is where the book came from because i've often said like i I'm doing this as a job. Yeah. I'm doing this as my, this is my job, talking to people about mental health, going into companies, going into schools, going into workplaces, like talking about mental health. Four years ago, I had no idea. I probably said the word mental health maybe once yeah. by accident, right? <laughs> like this is not where I should have been. Um, and I wanted, to, I've always said, I wish people could go on the journey I've gone on without having to lose a loved one and without anyone having to die. And so the idea of being able to write a book and take you from the first page to the last page and the first page being 
me when I was little, the last page being me now and what I what I now know, and take you on that journey and teach you everything I've learned over the last four years, which turned me into a completely emotionally unintelligent um, seventeen-year-old that had no idea about any of this world, to someone now that can that does every single day talk about this stuff is incredibly emotionally intelligent that that knows how to look after myself and just take you through that process and obviously the highs and lows the desperate lows and the, and the amazing highs that I've had over the last four years. Mm. Something really stood out last time we met when I basically invited you around and then the <laughs> microphones didn't work and we ended up uh, sitting in a pub for a couple of hours, <laughs> yeah. which was great to get to know you. But something really stood out for me that you said, and it was um, losing someone at that age makes you grow up really quickly. Yeah. And um, when I was thinking about what to ask you for this podcast, I was thinking, you've been through such a trauma Um and it always fascinates me how certain people, or a lot of the time you hear these amazing stories and people have written a book or they've done something amazing, created a business, created a charity. And some of the people I've had on this podcast are all very similar. And it stems from this trauma. And I want to give people an insight into like, what do you think about you made you able to turn that trauma into mm. a positive? It's really, this is a really interesting question because... You see people like me, and you know, I don't want this is not meant to sound like I'm blowing my own trumpet, but you know, awarded with things, got awards, you know, look very successful, high profile Instagram and social media, on the face of it, doing incredibly well out of this. But I'm doing, and, and you, the flip side is a lot of people go through trauma and they take up drug abuse and alcohol abuse and become very, very secluded and actually, yeah. you know, take up some really bad coping mechanisms. The, the difference between me and them is nothing. We found a coping mechanism that worked for us and we ran with it. Mm. The, yeah, the difference between me being in the situation I'm in now and me being addicted to drugs and you know in a very, very bad position, <laughs> it could have been so easy. It could have been so, so, so easy. And I think we live in a society that is very unforgiving to people mm. that are in very difficult situations. Um, but then they're also incredibly praising of people that are in my situation. You've coped so well. Um, yeah. <laughs> honestly, out of chance. I think what in my brain made me do this, I think I had a fantastic support network around me. Mm. I was in a very privileged position to have the people around me that allowed me to sort of get over that initial stage of trauma. But then also, you know, I have... I, I did fail my de my degree, but I, will, I do have an engineering brain. I'm a very like problem fixer. If there's a problem, I always want to solve yeah. it. And so I guess for me, it's like I had that experience of seeing this problem and being like, well, I can do something here. But I love I love that question because people are so demonized for for being on the on the sort of wrong end of society. Mm. And actually, oh my God, I've seen how easy it could be to be that. You know, mm. even with with drink and with you know and, and stuff that goes on in life, it's like it would be so easy to latch on that as mm. your coping mechanism. Because when you're in that situation, especially initially when you're going through trauma, your brain is so intoxicated with grief and with trauma, and it's it is basically torn apart to its very basic animalistic instinctual things. And if you were to find something that made you feel better in that moment. Absolutely, without a doubt, that would be that would be your coping mechanism. Luckily yeah. for me, I found campaigning and activism and all of this. Had it been drugs, had it been alcohol, that thing that filled that gap that 
that brought all the all the neurons back together. That could have very very easily been what I found as coping mechanism. Mm. I think yeah, it's, I find this disparity between doing it well and doing it badly, and mm. and the unforgiveness and the praise. It's it seems quite funny being in it because I'm like, it, this has all happened out of chance, and I could have been in a very very bad position. Mm. So this series, I've been lucky enough to partner with one of my favourite brands, Heights. In an ideal world, we would all eat a diverse, nutritionally complete diet that ensures we meet all of our nutritional requirements. However, if you're anything like me, you'll know that life likes to get in the way, and that's not always possible. That's where Heights and their Smart Supplement comes in as the best insurance policy for looking after me and my brain. The Smart Supplement consists of just two easy capsules taken every day and has been formulated by neuroscientist Dr. Tara Swart and dietitian Sophie Medlin. The all-vegan capsules are packed with 20 essential vitamins, minerals, antioxidants and healthy fats which are designed to support your brain, nervous system, immune system and even your sleep. I personally noticed an improvement in my focus, boosting my energy levels, I'm more motivated than ever on my goals and I even make it to the gym more often when I take heights. So if you want to get started with brain care, Heights are giving all of my listeners a 15% off your first quarterly subscription with the code STRAIGHTTALKING. Head to yourheights.com and use the code STRAIGHTTALKING and start taking care of your brain and body today. Absolutely love that answer. And it just gives so much nuance to what's potentially a really difficult question. And I think you could quite easily just pick something out of your personality and run with that. But actually that more contextual answer about there is an element of chance here. Mm. Like you were born into a family that supported you when you went through trauma, but there's a lot of people that aren't. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of people who don't get the right support and humans very much innately need that like support and that connection yeah. around you. And when you go through something traumatic, like you said so beautifully about your brain is just wanting some yeah. sort of comfort. Um, then yeah, it'd be really easy to go down a completely different rabbit hole. Yeah. Your job, as you've sort of explained, has given you like a really unique insight into the world of mental health, loads of different things. You've met Boris, um, which has probably given you loads of insight, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, and, you know, you've done all of these different things to the extent now you've written a book. What is the single most important thing you've learned about mental health that's relevant right now? Oh, that's such a difficult question. Single thing. Um, it's difficult to narrow it down to one. I think for me, it's it's sort of linking what to what I just said. It's the the fragility of it. Everyone sort of assumes that it doesn't happen to you. Like I would be the first person to tell you I never thought I'd have to be in this position. You know, this is the last thing I thought I'd have to do with my life. It's the last thing I ever thought I'd have to experience suicide. Mental health is incredibly fragile. And again, we're very unforgiving to certain people in situations when actually it's such a fragile system and you have to look after yourself because it, it can fall apart very, very quickly. People often look at mental health and mental health interventions and, and you know, all these things you see online about go for walks with your friends and find your cope mechanism. They're like, oh, I don't need to worry about that because I'm happy. But the number of people that I've met that have been very, very happy through their life and then have lost their job and her, their partners died and then all these things have gone wrong. And that has been a trigger where they have had a huge challenge in their life. But because they haven't practiced good mental health before and haven't got their coping mechanisms, they've fallen into an incredibly difficult place to get out of. And so what I'd say to people is mental health is incredibly fragile. Don't wait until it's fallen apart to try and put it back together again. You know, if you imagine it as a really, really delicate um, crystal glass, you know, like everyone has at home, like your mum's favourite glass or something yeah. in the cupboard, there's probably like one left because they've all been smashed. <laughs> so like imagine having, being given that 
and you can either hold it and expect you to never drop it and just expect that you're going to hold it forever and it'll never drop it. You could do that, right, and not drop it and you might be lucky and you might not drop it, but this moment you drop it, it's smashed. Mm. Um, or you can wrap it in bubble wrap and you can spend your life wrapping it in bubble wrap, still holding it. It's completely unnecessary because yeah. you're holding it, but you drop it and it'll bounce back up and you'll catch it again. And I think for me, it's like you can't, people need to realize just how fragile it is and you really can't predict what's about to happen in your life. Um, the number of people that I've met that have been suicidal, have, that have been very, very close to dying, that you know, have started their life in very, very good well, in good, you know, well. They've they've done well, they've had good family, good support and good all this, and then suddenly it's all falling apart around them. And then because they haven't got those coping mechanisms, they don't know how to look after their mental health, it becomes very, very, very difficult to climb out of that space. So what I'd say to people, it's fragile, look after yourself now. The most important time to look after yourself is not when you're feeling down, it's when you're feeling up. Yeah, absolutely. That's... It's a great answer because it just, for me, I think that instills urgency and why this is important. And it kind of brings me on to my next question, which is about statistics. And you quote statistics in the book, but actually you've got a really important comment about them. And and so, so for example, 834 million people suffer with a mental health condition across the world, which is like, you cannot get your head around it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. In one ear, out the other. It's just like a number on a piece of paper. And there's plenty more that I'm sure I've been, you know, guilty of quoting before. But when we do that, I think it's really easy for it to just become that piece of, yeah. you know, that that writing on a piece of paper. What can we do about that? What's like your view mm. on like statistics and and why how we can make that more important to yeah. people? I mean, firstly, I don't want to sound like I'm dissing all statistics. Statistics are incredibly important. Like I'm the first person to fall asleep at any. No offense to any st- statisticians, but I find all that incredibly dull. But it's absolutely vital that we have the statistics and the evidence and the data and the research to back up everything we're saying. Without that, we're completely blind. So first thing, statistics are really important. But the way we interpret statistics in the public domain is really important. Suicide statistics as an example of that. When you see every year, they'll come out with a figure, 6,000, 5,500, usually around that sort of space. They release it and it's like 6,000 is a, it's, you know, it's a, it's a big number, sure. Um, when you really think about that, you, I, it's, that's when you realize the scale of what that means. Because actually, you know, in the global sense, in the, in the, even in the national sense, 6,000 people is not a lot of people. It's not, it's not a lot of people. But actually when you've lived one, just one of those, you realize just the scale of the problem. And I always get slightly annoyed by this because when we say 6,500 suicides, we say 6,500 deaths, right? That's sort of what we're saying. And Sam's, Sam's life wasn't a death. It was his life. And 6,500 lives are lost to suicide every year, okay? In that life, you probably meet tens of thousands of people. You know, the, the average suicide, you know, affects about 10,000 people. You know, there's a huge number of people. Um, And so you start scaling it up and you're like, this isn't affecting, not 10,000 people, about, (laughs) that's a huge number of people, about 1,000 people deeply. When you start scaling it up, you realize actually that 6,000 figure becomes becomes 600,000 very, very, very quickly. Very, very quickly. And then you start realizing that actually 
when we talk about statistics, we forget that actually that one represents more than just one. It represents a lot of people. And I think, you know, you just bring that humanity back into statistics and, and realise that, that there is so much more beyond that. Like I say, Sam's life wasn't his death. Um, you've got to realise that these these the numbers are final numbers, and that's a devastating loss to a family. It's a devastating loss to friends. And so when politicians and people come out and they're like, 6,500, isn't that sad? It's just like, yeah, that's sad, but I don't think people realise the devastating effect that that number has on hundreds of thousands of people every year. Um, and that's really the statistic that needs to be out there, is, is, is that, is the, is the number of people affected by this um, and the lives that are lost. And also, you know, from a, and this is going to sound crude, but the, the financial implication that that has on, on the world is absolutely huge. Each suicide from what we've seen is that you know from an age death actually of a of a it's gonna sound awful i'm saying this but an economically active person is about two million pounds wow two million pounds is is what statisticians agree is sort of the cost of life okay when we're talking about 15 year old sam and young people obviously that number increases that's mm -hmm. what they're giving to the economy that's what they increase the economy that's the cost that they their life is worth when you scale that up to 6,500 suicides, you know, this is an enormous cost on this country. And I, that's why I, I find it difficult sometimes when we, these government officials will say 6,500 suicides, um, and then they'll, they'll put out 50 million pounds in, in, um, in spending and mental health increase, right? And you're like, okay, but let's do the maths for a second, because just on the cost of life alone is worth billions, right? Yeah. I mean, what are we talking there? 6,000 times 2 million is, uh, 1.2 billion is that right maybe not it wasn't Just very good enough i think it's, uh, is it right yeah yeah it sounds yeah, right it sounds about we'll right. have to check that so after a huge amount yeah that should be right Six thousand times yeah i think that's right it's 1.2 billion or 12 billion it's a lot of money and that's just in the cost of life. Um, not in, you know, there's so many more in terms of statistics, in terms of financial, build, uh, you know, effects on the on the economy. And it's just like there's all these things, but it all gets so lost when we just look at it as an arbitrary number. And that's why, for me, I'm so compassionate about meeting the real people, meeting family, meeting friends, meeting people that have been in that situation. Put that face to that number, and if you, I promise you, if you put a face to those numbers and you start to understand these stories and I start to meet these people, you realise six thousand five hundred is just devastating, absolutely devastating. Yeah, and I think I bring the question up and I ask it because I want people to care. Yeah. And until it affects you kind of directly of or sort of indirectly in your friendship circle or, or extended circle, yeah. it's very easy to just like gloss over these statistics. Yeah. Um, and I think like the one that like it's not affected me fully directly suicide. Um, but for those people at school that took their life and that, you know, affected me to a certain extent, yeah. they weren't like close friends, but it, it still gets you in that like that sort of community at a school being affected mm. by one suicide like that just really is, is quite stark for me. And yeah. I just think it's really important that we try to get away from these numbers as important as they are to sort of try and highlight the problem. Yeah. So try and humanize it again. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Bring the human back because if we don't understand that, then we're not reacting empathetically at all. We're acting in a purely uh you know numbers based approach which we as human beings so we don't work like that our brains are wired to react empathetically and react emotionally and actually what we need to do is react emotionally now because this is a devastating crisis we're in where thousands and thousands and thousands of people are dying every day 
hundreds of thousands of people are being affected directly, indirectly. Um, I think one of the most devastating things I was told was by um, my, not one of my teachers, but a teacher that, that messaged on the, um, on the petition page. Um, and there was a bit of an argument, I talk about it in the book, there was a bit of an argument about, you know, <laughs> whether teachers have enough stress it is. The answer is yes, they do. Um, and why, why they should be trained in mental health first aid, because it adds an extra thing to them. I mean, just side note, my argument is that actually mental health first aid training for teachers improves teaching mental health, teachers mental health, you know, Definitely. we're trying to solve the issue there as well. But the answer this teacher gave was, the burden of being able to help someone is nothing on the burden of an empty chair in your classroom for someone you you didn't know how to help. I'm like, what a powerful image. Because yeah. imagine that classroom, Sam's classroom with an empty chair. And how much could, w would we have done if we'd known that was inevitable to stop that from happening? And I can tell you right now that that classroom setting with that empty chair is absolutely inevitable. There will be about 100 of those classrooms next year. About 100 young people die from suicide every year in schools. About 100 of those classrooms with an empty chair. That is inevitable if we don't change anything. Yeah. But we know that's inevitable. What are we going to do to now stop that from happening? So in the future, that's the image. It's visionary. It's emotional. It's impactful. And that for me as a campaigner in this space is like, how do we ignite that emotional reaction in people to be like, this is what I went through. It's absolutely horrific. We cannot happen. We cannot let this happen to thousands of people wherever you are. It's just not right. Yeah. And that's like the severe end of the spectrum as well. So the children that yeah. are lost. But I, I mean, I'm, I've been back to my school recently um, and speaking to teachers that used to teach me and sort of getting that like insight of how things have changed. And I know now children are very different. Like yeah. they've sort of grown up much quicker, um, whether or not social media is playing a huge impact on their mental health or not, or there's other areas. But basically what we're seeing is far more sort of mm. anxiety related disorders, more issues with body image and eating disorders, more issues with self-harm. And so there is this massive spectrum in a in a classroom, like you say, five mm. out of every classroom on average, yeah. it's one in five or one in four young people with somewhere between those numbers have a diagnosable mental health condition. Mm. And so surely we need to give teachers the right education and every single one of them. Like currently the teachers that do the mental health training are few, like sort of not necessarily trained in doing it. And they are then having to find a resource look at the guidelines yeah. that are there and make resources and deliver them. And obviously there are places places and charities that are doing workshops, there are businesses that do that, but it's not in every school. Mm. It's not equipping every student and we need to. If yeah. the problem is that severe, we're talking from a moral perspective firstly, but then again from an economics perspective where you're saying two million, but that would be more if you lose a child or yeah. a child starts with severe mental health issues before and therefore can't work you know so it, it just makes sense you couldn't spend that amount of money in a preventative measure like you couldn't physically do it mm. it's too much money we're losing from this issue that you wouldn't even be able to make a preventative solution with all that money you'd have too much yeah. money left over right yeah you know it'd be the best highest highest class thing in the world in terms of an educational like in uh, intervention on that note your campaign um save our students 300,000 um, signatures, but I get the impression things haven't gone as well as you want. How are you going to sort of change that and, and move that forward? How can people help with that as well? Yeah, so <laughs> it didn't go as, as well as I wanted, but then it's not over. So, you know, it's all to play for. I think, you know, when you're invited to Downing Street, you sort of see that as like, here we go, things are moving. Getting there, yeah. um, I think, to be honest, I think I, they saw that as an opportunity to, to, 
basically cut it off what we were doing um basically invite us in treat us like we'd done an amazing thing thank us give us the whole vip treatment and hope we'd sort of leave it to them um <laughs> that's that's what they expected um i'm not going to do that i've realized that you know times have moved on and and you know i've been working on this a long time and and i've had some time out and time to think about it and time to reflect and i still think this is an important thing to do and that's why like i said i've gone through the legislation i found found what needs to actually change the individual sentences in the legislation that that, that mismatch and don't make sense and need to be updated and need something feeding into that it's it's all there i've got it i know what needs to happen and so for me it's next next year is like let's bring attention to that i've got exactly what needs to happen i've been talking to some great politicians to try and sponsor something through and sort of take a new angle in this but it's like you mentioned the new legislation around pshe and rse education mental health now has to be taught in schools mm-hmm. brilliant okay brilliant that that's become important suddenly and what's not brilliant is i think it's done the wrong way around we've <laughs> we've told teachers to teach about mental health but at no point in their training have we taught them anything about mental health. Exactly. Um, and it's just like, I think what I was calling for back in 2019, had they, list- I mean, had they listened and actually done it then, we would have been in a much better position now to have launched this new legislation for, for curriculum and for mental health education. You can't expect teachers to teach mental health. They don't understand it themselves. Um, but also, you know, going through, going for the, the, the RSE mental health education that all key stages are now meant to learn, schools it's completely left optional as to how much time is spent on it. You could spend one lesson on it and that in the eyes of the government, in the eyes of curriculum is a tick. You can spend one lesson on mental health and that, that is your year done. Um, that to me is absolutely ludicrous. This is the most, I think the most important thing you can learn in school, um, given the current situation that we're dealing with, um, how you look after yourself. Surely that is the most important thing to do. Like your brain, some people often ask me what is mental health, right? Everything you see and do, every single decision you make throughout your day, everything, your relationships, your decisions, your decision to have a glass of water when you get out of bed in the morning, everything is linked to your mental health. Your, every single action you do. And at the moment, and when I was taught at school, we were not told anything about how to look after that, that thing that's making all of those decisions. That's surely the most important thing to look after and, and to be educated about. And for me, it's like reaffirming and redirecting that attention back to, hey, we can't do any of this if we don't start teaching our teachers how to look after our mental health, how to educate about mental health, give them the baseline knowledge to do that. So much of the legislation, it's actually ridiculous, so much of the legislation in, um, in safeguarding in schools is assumed knowledge. Um, mm. A lot of it, to think of one off the top of my head, is is sort of, you know, schools... T- giving um, teachers the ability, the knowledge of where to signpost students that they notice are struggling with their mental health. Okay, well, let's pick that apart. They've just assumed that you know how to how to firstly notice that someone's struggling with not a lot of teachers do because a lot of the time it's so stressful and so fast-paced that people acting up is bad behavior, so it gets missed. <clears throat> so it's like it's assumed knowledge. And I'm like, well, let's teach them the assumed knowledge if it's assumed. Let's, you know, actually pick, piece that together. Yeah, and then you have certain, uh, then you, you'll have a group of children in, in the room and because some have mental health issues and you're, there's other teenagers growing up and there's young people, they feel that they need to have a mental health issue yeah. to then fit in or they're the weird one for not having a mental health issue. And, and the problem comes, it's like, we don't know what's going on in that other person's head. You know, we don't like, as a teacher, you don't know what's actually mm. going on in that child's head. And so 
we have to just take everything as valid, right? Like yeah. If they're saying that they feel a certain way, we just have to, you have to believe that and support them through that. Um, but without any training, without any understanding and just yeah. like, you know, you have to learn on your own and then deal with the whole classroom children when you're yeah. saying five out of that 25, say, are potentially having a diagnosable mental health condition. Everyone yeah. else has their own mental health troubles or yeah. battles or issues. You may not think that you do, but actually we're all going through this constant cycle um, yeah. with our mental health. And so it's just, it just seems so obvious. Right? All right. All I'm saying is let's just hang on. Has anyone just thought that maybe we shouldn't assume that people already know this? Okay, maybe they do. And I'm sure there are so many amazing teachers out there that, that go out of their way to get this education. There are so many teachers that do understand it. They've got lived experience. They are fantastic. But you cannot simply make legislation and make a teacher training course on the assumption that everyone in, in that profession is going to know. And I think what we need to do is just give that baseline knowledge so that people go in, actually have that understanding. And really what needs to happen in this country is we need to change cultures in schools. That's what really needs to happen. And for me, the absolute start, and this isn't to say this is the absolute be all end all, because a lot of people <laughs> pick poles in the argument being like, well, that's not going to change anything. This is not the, the magic solution but it for me it's the absolute starting point and it is the starting point you can't do anything else until you've got that baseline knowledge of all your staff and then suddenly you can start doing the other stuff you can start looking at education for, for students you can start looking at framework about you know the safeguarding framework and how that works in schools but you you have any argument and any solution in school and I'm like the first thing that has to happen to make that possible and to make that work well is a baseline knowledge for all staff and everyone working in that school. But at the moment we don't have that. <laughs> Makes a, a ton of sense. Yeah. It kind of opens up this conversation, sort of opens up as well, like the, the debate around what schools are there to achieve and have we gone over the last however many years down a route where things are very much related to getting a child to achieve certain exam results instead of actually preparing them for life. And I think pretty much everyone that I speak to would would feel that there is mm. we have gone one one way too far, and that's clear from what I'm getting at. And this is hopefully the start. We need people like you. We need to push for this. But it's hopefully the start of perhaps like some change within the system mm. because it isn't set up for for making the best people possible that no. are the most resilient, the most able to cope with life, particularly with the way that the world is changing from a technological perspective and things. I feel like, you know, it's a big conversation. I think we could probably spend a whole podcast talking about yeah. something like that, but there's a lot to be done and, uh, you know, there's a lot to do. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to be said about just tearing the whole system apart and starting again, you know. So, <laughs> I didn't like, want to say it. <laughs> here we go. Like this whole system that we've built our society on, you know, it not, very few systems for societies around the world work perfectly, but we've created one which is so 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 um you know competitive and so driven for academic and 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 you know business and all of this stuff that's how it works that's how it works so schools have naturally tried to follow that path and become incredibly academic incredibly academic focused but actually you look at some schools that are slightly doing doing it differently and there are that, that are sort of outliers that are doing things differently and they've got kids that are happy they've got kids that know how to look after their mental health they go into the working world that do their own thing and are just doing so well and you're like actually if we try and change our mindset about this and instead of preparing people to know 
the Krebs cycle in biology, <laughs> but actually understand themselves and understand what they want to do and how they want to act and how they can be a good person, how they can you know, look after themselves. Suddenly you've got someone that is an absolute machine for the world because they're going to be productive. There are so many, you know, so many people that are taking a different path and actually creating young people that that are emotionally intelligent and know how to go about their life and know what they want to do and are motivated and, and then given the opportunity to learn about the mental health so they can go and be productive. But I guess like it all comes down to we are, we do live in a society where you, rightly or wrongly, they've, they've, we've sort of created it so you have to feel the bottom line as, as it were, right? And, and actually create schools that are designed to sort of rate people and, and put this person an A grade, this person the B grade, and it's it's creates so much pressure. And I look at so many people ask like, oh, why are we seeing so many mental health problems with 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 um with young people now? And I'm like, okay, my GCSEs had to do twenty one exams in two and a half weeks. Like, can you tell me why we stress? You know, A levels there was we had like three exams, four exams per subject. It ended up being like fifteen exams. You're like, come on, mm-hmm. you know, it's not rocket science. Why everyone's so burnt out and so stressed? Um, and this is happening from younger and younger and younger now. Like the competition in schools is just so horrendous. But look, adding competition and making school stressful is fine. I think in the same way that stress at university is fine, as long as you are equipping people to deal with that stress and if you're causing stress then you have a responsibility to alleviate the stress and what we're seeing actually from government from schools and from universities actually as well is constant increase in stress but constant denial of responsibility to do anything about it and actually i'm of opinion if you're increasing stress and increasing burnout and increasing mental health conditions then it's not on the responsibility of the person necessarily entirely to sort it out themselves. Actually, if you're the one increasing the stress, then you've got to be the one that's coming up with solutions to fix it. Um, but I think actually, yeah, changing that approach with schools is so important because you, we're just leaving a group of 16, 18 year olds absolutely burnt out before they've even started their lives. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's, we have to avoid transferring that tick boxing type approach to the, the well-being stuff as well yeah. and, the, and the mental health training. Because if you do that, then you're not actually achieving real education. You're not achieving what we discussed earlier, which is the awareness and the understanding of the behavior change. You know, you're not giving those tools to the young people that they yeah. so desperately need. It's been a, like a, if you just listen to that conversation, it can sound a little bit depressing. I think yeah. there's loads of like good parts in there, but it is a bit depressing by the very nature of things. Um, but I want to give people things that they can go away with that they feel like they can improve either their own mental health yeah. or the situation. So I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about what your best sort of advice would be on that. Yeah, I mean, first of all, you're right. It can get a little bit deep and depressing and sad sometimes talking about this. And and you know, it is for a large part of it. You know, a lot of it is very, very sad and very desperate and not good. But actually, you know, I'm in this situation and I'm still here campaigning. Like I said, I've got an engineering brain like to solve problems. I'm still here because I, I wouldn't be here if I think I'm wasting my time. I think this is a very solvable issue the issue that we're facing the crisis we're facing and actually there's so much good that's happening and so much progress is happening and and i think there's a lot to be hopeful for for the future that actually we are going to see change in terms of our own lives like i said at the beginning you've got to look after yourself when you're at the high not the low and so some of the things you need to be starting to do is like working out what is your coping mechanism what is that thing that keeps you happy 
you know, I, I volunteer for, um, for Shout, the crisis text line. Yeah. And through that framework that we get trained to deliver, it's, it's through you take people through a path and all that path leads to is identifying that thing that people have that makes them feel happy. I cannot tell you how few people can quickly identify what that thing is. It's really interesting actually seeing how many people really struggle to find that one thing that they feel happy doing. And what I would say to people is actually find and identify that one thing that you can do that you always have access to that will keep you happy So and keep you stress-free. For me, that's running. Like, I'm sorry, you don't need any equipment to run. You just need shoes. Uh, you don't even need that. Some people like barefoot running and all this. So, like, you don't need anything. You can just go out and run. I absolutely love it. Not to run for a time, not to run for anything else, not to run to burn a calorie, just running to enjoy running and get some food and love it. That's what works for me. Some people, that would be an absolute nightmare. That would make them far more stressed, right? <laughs> and find that one thing that you can do on a stressful day that you can prioritize. Um, and do that while you're happy and when you're in a good place. Because when you're in a bad place, the last thing you're going to do when you wake up and you feel depressed, and it's happened to me, when you feel overwhelmed and you've got so much going on, the last thing you're going to do in that situation would be like, I'm going to think about this new thing I'm going to do. Or maybe I should paint. Or maybe I can go for a run. Or maybe I should go and you're not going to do that. Um, but because I've ingrained it into my life and because it's something I know I like, love, when I have that bad day, I'm going to be like, you know what? I'm just going to postpone that meeting for half an hour. I'm going to go for a quick run, not even very long, 2K, come back, have a shower and jump on this meeting. I know that's what I need to do. Mm-hmm. But I know that because I, I found it when I was happy and in a good place. When you're in a bad place, it's really difficult to find that thing. But um, so, you know, coping mechanisms, running, um, a lot of people like painting, a lot of people like music, um, you know, writing, journaling, meditation, all these things. There's absolutely so mindfulness. Um, there's so much out there. Reading a book, even like just, there's so many things that you can find your escape in. Um, and I would just urge people to find that while you're in a good place mm-hmm. so you can use it when you're in a bad place. Wrap that, that crystal glass in your bubble wrap now yeah, so yeah. you can drop it, you can throw it around later, whatever happens. This is a good analogy. How do people get involved with your mission and help you out? Oh, so I mean, the classic plug for the follow. <laughs> if you, you can follow me on my Instagram. Um, I am Ben West. You can, um, get like interact with all the stuff online. The student edition, um, save our students is on change.org. Go to change.org. You can go save our students. Um, and it should come up. It'll be, uh, make mental health first aid part, a compulsory part of teacher training. A signature on that would be amazing. But honestly, just a follow. Like I, I do a lot of stuff on Instagram. Anything important that I'm going to do is going to be on there. Um, and it's an, obviously a, a lovely community that I've got that I absolutely adore because it's, again, like it's a very depressing situation to be in. Yeah. But I'm like, actually, I look at my DMs, look what we're doing. And I'm like, there are solutions yeah. here and there's progress to be made. Social media gets a lot of bad press, but actually yeah. when people like yourself create these communities um, with a common cause, that is obviously a bit depressing. Yeah then you create these support networks and you create these like nice little interactions yeah. which actually really help people. Let's wrap up. I always ask people this question. You may have already given your answer to this, to be fair, but what's your one best bit of advice for someone looking to improve their health and happiness? Oh, that is really hard. I would say I've answered in, in, in iterations throughout, but I'll say something new and that's um, always talk uh, to people. It's we say it all the time then we talk about your mental health and it's, it's sort of you glaze over that now hearing it um i wouldn't be okay if i didn't talk to anyone and there was a lot of moments where i had to really dig deep to have conversations with people i really didn't want to have um 
<laughs> immediately those words leave your mouth and you feel better. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say again, following on from what I've just said, find those people, find those support networks while you're okay. Find the people that you trust where you're okay. Um, you don't register your GP when you're already at work. Find those people that you, that you have that system already in place, but always just talk to people. Um, and also it goes the other way. If you're worried about someone, reach out. Um, so, so easy to assume it's someone else's job. So easy to assume someone else will do it. Always assume you're the only person that's noticed someone's in a bad way. Reach out, talk. We're human beings. We absolutely need human connection. We need conversation. Um, and that's really what we mean by, by talk about our mental health. Let's talk about it. Let's be vulnerable. Talk to your friends if you need it. Talk to your friends if they need it. And on what you just said there about reaching out when you are well, I think the onus has to be on us. We have to take more responsibility when we are well to reach out to our friends because we know we've spoken about it. If you're not feeling yourself, you don't do the things that you know you need to do to look after yourself. And one of those is reaching out to other people. Yeah. So you become isolated by the very nature of depression or mental health issues. So I think it's just really important just to just to, to remind people. We all know to do it. Yeah. Sometimes it's hard. But just you know, just stay stay in contact with your friends, connect with them. That's it. Cheers, man. Thank you. And that's a wrap for season two of the Straight Talking Dots podcast. Thanks so much for everyone who's listened so far. Big thanks to all my guests this series and Ben. I found that episode really insightful. I hope you guys found it useful too. I'll be back making podcasts again in the new year at some point. But in the meantime, if you have enjoyed them, please give them a like or subscribe or share or tell people. But keep safe. I'll be back soon. Lots of love.